0: Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Fritz Coleman.
1: And I'm Louise Palenker.
0: We hope MediaPath is one of your New Year's resolutions and that you stick to it longer than your new 24-hour fitness membership. We have some great media selections for you today, including author Chris Whipple. His latest book is called The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. Now, We make very few demands on our listeners other than to try to stay awake during the presentation. But we are demanding that you read this book before the 2024 election. Chris is an author, a political analyst, and an Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker. You see him on MSNBC, CNN, NPR. He's contributed essays to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and Vanity Fair. I love this book, and The Gatekeepers as well, which analyzed the position of the uh, White House Chiefs of Staff. His critically acclaimed follow-up to that was The Spymasters. Masters. I haven't read it, but I'm fascinated by it. It's interviews with every living CIA chief. Chris is going to be with us for a great conversation. A minute. Weezy, what do you have for us?
1: Well, I'm going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland. It is a five part documentary from BBC in Northern Ireland, which shares deeply personal stories from folks across religious and political spectrums who actively participated and were forever changed by the hostilities. When the British military was sent into the streets of Belfast to calm IRA violence in 1969, tensions escalated and paramilitary units on both sides grew, became radicalized, and waged devastating guerrilla war for decades. The troubles lasted 30 years, but the yearning for respect, human rights, and identity goes back centuries. As a kid in the U.S., we watched the urban warfare in Ireland on the nightly news and you'd see burning cars and buildings and rubble and little children hurling rocks and firebombs. It was quite shocking. We were told that the troubles were over religion. Well, they were, but the divide was more specifically between Northern Ireland residents who identified as British and the Irish Catholics who were living in their ancestral homeland. Most Americans with Irish backgrounds, like our president, are Catholic. The Protestant Brits who lived in Ireland did not need to emigrate. They were doing just fine. Manor houses, landed gentry, the whole colonizer setup. It's the Irish Catholics who starved during the potato famines. They had been oppressed, brutalized, and redlined for centuries, having been invaded. The Normans first invaded Ireland in 1169. The Irish people have been fighting for their identity ever since, while many inhabitants of British heritage have felt British for centuries. On the Isle of Ireland total, the British-Irish split is 40-60 Irish. But in Northern Ireland, it's the other way around. Belfast itself is extremely segregated. People who know each other only well enough to resent each other are a powder keg. This series clearly demonstrates just how quickly ordinary citizens will become enraged, radicalized, brutal, barbaric warriors. We hear from folks in their 60s and 70s who are forever imprinted by the violence they've survived, witnessed, and perpetrated. We hear from former paramilitaries on both sides, from people who planted bombs from a loyalist estate heir whose family's secret challenged his beliefs. And from a son whose single mother was kidnapped and murdered by the ira she is jean mcconville a mother of nine who had been spotted by the ira tending to the wounds of a british soldier her story provides the through line for a brilliant book i read a few years back called say nothing a true story of murder and memory in northern ireland it's by patrick radden keefe as we watch anger and division erupt into horror around the world or here at home it is good to study the histories and root causes and to remember Our Shared Humanity. Once Upon a Time in Ireland is on PBS and Prime Say Nothing is by Patrick Radden Keefe.
0: Sounds really good. The last time our consciousness was raised about that issue was President Clinton and George Mitchell doing all that work over there. Mm -hmm. And now it's just sort of drifted out of our mindset until a YouTube concert and then we think about it (laughs) all. U2, not YouTube, YouTube. Anyway, my pick this week is The Last Movie Stars. This is a documentary miniseries, six episodes, streaming on a few of the services. It's about the lives and the careers of Paul Newman and his wife, Joanne Woodward. Wheezy had recommended this series a while ago. It took me this long to get around to it, and I'm so glad I did. This project happened after transcripts of interviews with Newman were uncovered and they were abandoned. And it was a memoir project that just sort of went south. One of the daughters of Newman and Joanne Woodward approached. Ethan Hawke to produce this documentary based on the written transcriptions. He gathered a galaxy of stars via Zoom to perform the various parts. And I say perform because they didn't just read the text of the transcripts. Their interpretations were well acted and very believable. George George Clooney does Newman and his really quite good. Other guests include Martin Scorsese, uh, Sally Field, Laura Linney, and many others. This was during lockdown, so we see Ethan Hawke interviewing these folks before the performances. There's intercutting between the interviews and the performances on Zoom. The Zoom isn't as irritating as you would expect it to be. It sort of adds a, a theater of the mind aspect to the whole piece. Newman and Woodward were married for 50 years, were considered one of the most successful married couples in Hollywood. But the marriage was a long way from perfect. This isn't your typical A&E celebrity biography. It's the wages of stardom, personal and marital. It's all about their early romance and the immense insecurity sparking between these two hugely talented people. It's about the early days with Elia Kazan at the actor's studio and their classmates like Marilyn Monroe, Marlon Brando, James Dean. It's about... Joanne's relentless drive and laser focus to become a movie star. It's about Paul's insecurity about his own talent. It's about Paul's dark relationship with his mother. It's about their complicated relationship with their children, especially Paul's with son Scott who dies of a drug overdose. It's Newman's guilt. It's his fight with alcohol. It's the raw truth about two of Hollywood's greatest talents that had to fight to make it work under one roof. Really beautiful, Weezy, and um, I'm so glad that I took your recommendation a year and a half later
1: yes and watch it just for the evolution of Ethan Hawke pandemic hairdos alone it's quite a, he does a
0: spectacular job with this you tell tell he, he's so passionate about the the copy.
1: source material is so wide and he mm-hmm. just pulls everything together and then uses movie stars to reenact the movie stars of a different era it, it really yeah. it just kind of clips along you'll love the it the
0: guy that plays Gorvadol yeah. is off the chain good I don't know yeah. that, I never heard of that guy before but he was really good All right, let's get to our guest, Chris Whipple. His latest book, The Fight of His Life, Inside the Joe Biden White House. I'm giving it five bookmarks or five semicolons or whatever you do (laughs) for a perfect book. There have been so many books about what went on in the Trump White House, or as I call it, the Amityville House with a Rose Garden. This is the (laughs) other side of the split screen. Chris had access to those in the inner circle, including the president's retired chief of staff, Ron Klain. Lots of insider insights from folks who were there and are there and made it happen. Uh, This isn't a a pro-Biden public relations piece. Chris is very honest about the speed bumps, the failures and the missteps of the current administration. But it's honest and real about a president that I feel is honest and real as well. Chris, welcome. We're so happy to talk to you. We've been talking about this for a long time.
2: Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: I want to just say that I love the gatekeepers. It was interesting and instructive about White House chiefs of staff, especially in light of what a dark and pivotal player Mark Meadows has turned into in our latest issues. And uh, it's, it's, it's a good primer for people that want to understand that office. Uh, somebody said it's like the third most powerful office in the United States. H- how would you grade Ron Klain now that he's retired as a chief of staff?
2: Well, thanks. Um, look, Ron Klain, I think, belongs in really elite company. And and but before before I go any further on that, can I just say that I'm really dying to see Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland because I was there covering the Troubles.
1: Oh, I was oh there for the,
2: I was there with the great Harry Benson, wow, uh, the photographer who came over with the Beatles in 1964. Yeah. Harry and I covered the hunger strike, and we were there oh. on the day that Mickey Devine, the 10th hunger striker, died in the oh. Mays prison. And that was a oh, life-changing my. assignment. Uh, Who did you I write thought, for at the time? But anyways, so it was The Gatekeepers was also, you know, my book on the White House Chiefs was was also life-changing for me. Um, and it was uh, just a revelation. I mean, I, I had no idea when I got into it that... Um, that the, the White House chiefs of staff really make the difference between success and failure for every presidency, in my view. That's what I concluded <clears throat> after uh, interviewing almost every, well, in fact, it was every living White House chief of staff at the time. This was back in uh, 2017 when that book came out. Um, Ron Klain, I think, it really belongs in, in the top echelon. Um, the two best, in my view, were... Ronald Reagan's James A. Baker, III third uh, and uh, Bill Clinton's Leon Panetta. Those mm-hmm. two guys were the gold standard.
1: Do you base it somewhat upon what they were facing as they enter office?
2: Yeah, to some extent, mm-hmm. um, you know, think about think about claim and yeah. the challenges that they faced. I mean, this was uh, possibly the most daunting array of challenges that Joe Biden faced uh, since Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, you had a once in a century pandemic, an economy that was in free fall, uh, <clears throat> racial injustice, global warming, uh, and oh, by the way, the aftermath of a a violent insurrection, uh, an attempt to overthrow uh, democracy, that was a pretty full plate. And I think that Klein, uh did a pretty outstanding job.
1: And almost no transition.
2: Well, you know, yeah, that, I really want to talk oh, that about part that.
1: of your book is fascinating. It so,
0: really is. I want to talk about that. Yeah.
1: Dude. Help us understand that a little better.
2: Well, thank you. Because I really see the the book, The Fight of His Life inside Joe Biden's White House, as a kind of political thriller in three acts. And that and the first act was <clears throat> this unbelievably fraught transition from Trump to Biden. Uh, It was the most violent since the Civil War, as we all know. Uh, At every step, Trump was trying to prevent the transfer of power. And yet, unbeknownst to Trump, under his nose and without his knowledge, uh, an obscure Deputy White House Chief of Staff named Chris Liddell was making sure that the wheels of the transition kept turning. And he was a guy who... Uh, he's a fascinating guy. He's a New Zealander who came to the U.S. and made a fortune before joining the Trump White House. Um, <clears throat> but what he did was he 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 made sure that he 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 had a couple of he, he was actually uh, talking to a number of former Republicans, Josh Bolton, who was George W. Bush's uh, final chief of staff, and others. He wanted to quit um off and on he was he was and he would be talked off the ledge by Bolton and others and they would say, no no, no listen, you have to stay. you have to make sure that the transition takes place And he did um and it's a fascinating story.
1: Yeah, it's quite heroic and I love how you bring your 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 book full circle with him at, at the at the end uh, as well. it's quite it's quite moving um let's talk for a moment about, some of biden's strengths with which i think because you know i have a theory that in politics there's show horses and work horses and i you know like of course we're all a blend of all kinds of things some people are both but i i think biden's a work horse and kamala harris is a show horse for example because he's doing just a lot of a lot of stuff right right underneath our our, our view that he's not even interested in taking credit for because he just wants to get on to the next thing. But he's really good at relationships. He's great at timing. He understands when to do what and what has to be in place before he can do the next thing. He understands human nature. He understands alliances. He's very inclusive. He shares credit. He uh, He's a team builder. So you're not just voting for Biden, you're voting for this brilliant team that he that that he puts together. So talk about some of his strengths that he's not really willing to to tout himself that are in your book. Well,
2: you know, all of that is true, I think. Uh, but I think he, Joe Biden would be happy to take credit for, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all, for all of all of the achievements that he feels he's um, accomplished. And it's been an it was extraordinarily productive first term. I mean, this is a this is a a president who has created more jobs than any other president in history, 14 million. Um, We we all know the metrics, um, the low unemployment and and all the rest. Um, You know, it, it was interesting because when the 2022 midterms came around, Biden wanted to go out and he wanted to go everywhere and he wanted to take credit for everything. And he had a lot to brag about and he felt that it wasn't being heard. But Ron Klain is chief of staff and others sat him down <clears throat> and said, look, Mr. President, you're going to go to the states where we think you can make a positive difference. And you're going to talk about two things, women's reproductive rights and the threat to democracy posed by MAGA. Biden followed that script, and the rest is history. Right? Uh, they, The Democrats, as we all know, defied historical expectations and uh to everybody's astonishment. So <clears throat> I think Joe would Joe Biden would love to be out there taking credit for for everything, but he is a workhorse. Uh he's been underestimated time and time and time again. Nobody thought when he took office in January of twenty twenty one that he could get any kind of bipartisan legislation accomplished. It took him a while. Um I I mentioned before that it's a the book is a political thriller in three acts. The first act was that unbelievably fraught transition. The second act really was dominated by the bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think I'm um, I'm pretty uh you know pretty pretty I did no holds barred and absolutely on my description of that. Mm-hmm. That but, gave
0: that gave your book credibility for me because you just went deep on that. As you did with Kamala Harris, and I, I thought that was a, just a very honest analysis of how that
2: played out. Well, thank you. But then, then I think in the third act of the book, uh, and of course the fourth act will be re-election, and that's going to be a thriller. <laughs> but in the but but in the third act of of my book, um, which I think you know helps people understand where we are right now, uh, it really began, in my view, on February uh, twenty-two. Uh, or rather, February 24, 2022, when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, and and Joe Biden rose to meet that moment. If he'd done everything wrong in Afghanistan, he and his team did everything right when on Ukraine. It was an extraordinary uh, tour de force the way they were able to rally NATO and rise to meet that moment. Um, so, and and it was followed by a a real run of legislative success that nobody saw coming and, and it's comparable really to to LBJ. So anyway, that's that's I see the book as kind of three acts with a fourth act now to come. Mm.
0: Let's talk about his legislative successes. A lot of his successes are unsung. For a couple of reasons One is the siloed media that we're in there are people on the right who will never hear about these things because That information isn't delivered on a daily basis plus the other thing and this makes me mad about the party He doesn't have any advocates being vocal out there. Where are they the the, uh, the nationally? Uh, known congressmen and senators where are the blue state state governors where are people out there sticking up and pointing to the infrastructure stuff he's doing in their states. There just seems to be nobody bragging for this man.
2: Well, I think y- you'll see a lot more of that as the campaign gets underway. And Mitch Landrieu, for example, is going to be out there. And but I, I think, um, I think he's going to need a lot of help from from other surrogates. But look, I mean, at the end of the day, I really think <clears throat> Joe Biden's going to have to sell. Uh, this re-election himself, um, even if he has Taylor Swift out there registering <laughs> young Democrats, which I think would be a really good idea, uh, he's going to have to sell this deal himself. Um, and I think that there's an awful lot of hand wringing, and uh, I, I, and and I think that his handlers are afraid to to let Biden be Biden and get out there and. And do what he does best which is really um really communicating about kitchen table stuff and he needs to do that and i think he needs to kind of do what bill clinton did at the 2012 convention remember when he was barack obama's secretary for explaining stuff (laughs) and and he gave that great speech in which he said look we didn't get into this overnight, this mess overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight. Prices are higher. You're absolutely, you know, I get that. Prices are higher. Here's how we're going to bring them down. And here's wh- here's why they're they're higher. Right? And I, and I think I think Biden needs to get out and, and do that <clears throat> and acknowledge that you know a, a lot of voters in swing states really don't care that he's created 14 million jobs when they're working two and a half jobs and paying higher prices.
0: That That's what I wonder about. Is, is the whole saving democracy too ambiguous, too lofty, a, a theory to be plugging, or should it just no. be
2: kitchen table? <clears throat> no, I think that's the other. There are three legs to this stool, at least. And one leg is to explain the economy in, in terms that ordinary voters can understand and relate to. Uh, a second is women's reproductive rights, and and the fact that Trump and his mega gang want to take your freedoms away. And but the third is the very real threat to democracy, and it's it's real. And the 2022 midterms proved that voters care about it. Uh, everybody who tried to uh, all the election deniers went down during those during the 2022 primary. And it's a it's a you know, that's that is possibly the most important issue uh, of all. Um, So I think those three things will resonate.
1: So when we are talking with our friends about Biden and they invariably mention his age, we should all be able to quickly rattle off his accomplishments. So I made a list of 23, but they each contain lengthy itemizations and annotations. Like for example, number one, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which increases investment in the national network of bridges and roads, airports, public transport, national broadband, internet. So by this point, your your friend has drifted off. So can you help us with like a really quick uh, bullet point of what we should all memorize and be able to say socially to our friends uh, in in support of Biden?
2: Well, he, he brought the economy back from the dead. You know, Trump likes to pretend that uh, the economy was better under him. The fact is that he drove it on, into the ditch and lost more jobs than any American president in history. Uh, Biden brought it back from the dead. Uh, he created 14 million jobs. He's reduced unemployment to historic levels. He's passed bipartisan infrastructure legislation, uh, which Trump bragged about doing and never did. Uh, the list goes on and on, and you know people's eyes glaze over at a certain point, as you as you mention. But it's it's an extraordinary list of achievements, and and judges are also um, among those achievements. Uh, <clears throat> the the Inflation Reduction Act is the most significant uh, act to to reduce global warming ever uh, conceived. Much less past, um, and he rallied Ukraine. He rallied NATO in defense of Ukraine when Vladimir Putin invaded the largest democracy in Europe. Um, you know, and 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 um, and he certainly, you know, with Israel, I think he was he 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 certainly rose to that moment with real moral clarity when when Israel was invaded. Now, I would argue that he needs to now. Create some distance from Netanyahu, uh, but that's another story. But there's a—it's a tremendous record of accomplishment.
1: And also think about like uh, all of the cliffs that he has negotiated us off of labor disputes, et cetera. He's just really good in a crisis. He has a team that's like on it. It's just where to focus attention. And now we have the border, and everyone's going to you know get distracted by the border. There's always going to be some issue that is brought up as. It's not a Biden-made issue, but it's an issue that he was supposed to have fixed. So what? What should we? Well, yeah, we be- Red,
2: right. So remember the debt ceiling crisis. Yes, exactly. Of course not. No one does because it was solved.
1: Exactly. Because, That's Because
2: yeah. because the new uh, White House chief of staff, Jeffrey Zients, and his team, uh, and Steve Ruschetti and and others, uh, they they conducted a master class. And they ate Kevin McCarthy's lunch, and they solved that problem. And this is what these guys do for yeah. the most part. Yeah. um so you know they do they do an awful lot of uh, work without getting much credit.
1: yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I,
0: I want to go back to Afghanistan because it's it's as you say, his first big dark period. What do you think that was was that? Him just sticking to his guns, was it an intelligence failure? To me, it seemed like a no-win situation. No matter how you got out of that, it was not going to go well, just because well, you, look, you it wanted was, to It
2: was, without a doubt, um, a, a real failure um, on, on the part of the Biden administration. I mean, certainly was one of their darkest hours, uh, and... And I think I'm I'm pretty clear-eyed about that in the book. I don't want people to think that this is a a Biden cheerleading exercise. Oh it, no, absolutely I, not. I think I'm I think I'm pretty pretty honest and clear about that. I think it was a combination of things. <clears throat> there was a massive intelligence failure, and in the book I described, I mean, I interviewed Bill Burns, the CIA director, at length. I interviewed uh, Tony Blinken, um, and I uh, got very different stories about the the intelligence that they said they were looking at. Uh, Tony Blinken told me in no uncertain terms that they were told they had 18 months uh, before the the Afghan armed forces and government would collapse. Um, when I went and sat down with Bill Burns uh, in his office at CIA headquarters, that was news to him. Uh, and he said, no, oh, no, look, listen, we were clear eyed about the, the, uh, fragility of the Afghan armed forces and and particularly we we warned that um, that if you withdrew the American contractors that <clears throat> that everything could could fold like a house of cards. So there was conflicting intelligence. Um, Biden at the end of the day was absolutely convinced um, that that we had to get out. Having said all that, and I think he was furious about the intelligence failure. Having said all that, I do think that the writing was on the wall for the Afghan government and armed forces when Donald Trump said flatly that the U.S. was getting out. Um, I believe it was October of 2021 that he said the the U.S. was going to withdraw. From that moment forward, I think it was practically mission impossible uh, for the U.S. to get out in in any kind of uh, orderly way, uh, because the they knew. I mean, just as the South Vietnamese knew that uh, forty years earlier that the writing was on the wall.
0: Mm-hmm. I think one of the most touching and heartbreaking passages, little series of passages in your book, is the story that happened to the president and the first lady when they went to Andrews to receive the bodies of the soldiers that were killed in an Afghan terrorist attack as the country was being evacuated tell that story that must have crushed everybody
2: yeah it was it was extraordinary <clears throat> very very painful i think for the president he went uh with joe biden to to uh preside over the uh over that uh, that very you know dignified and and sad uh procession and <clears throat> he was confronted by several families of the fallen soldiers. Uh, Biden, as he often does, always does in these situations, he, he, he tends to, he shares stories about his son, Beau. Uh, and, he, and he uses it to bond with grieving families. And in this case, he was attacked for it. Um, he was, and, and, and it was raw and it was emotional. The families were unhappy with him. Uh, and um, when he came back to the White House that evening, he said to a very close friend, he was devastated. Um, It had never happened to him when he talked about both. And he came back and he said, this is what being president is all about.
1: Yeah, buck stops. Yeah. So Joe Biden does not have the vice president partner that Barack Obama had. Kamala Harris is groundbreaking, but she's also as you write, complicated and, and, and challenging. So as Biden continues into his 80s, is it increasingly important that his vice president could step into his role in a heartbeat? And as he runs for a second term, should he possibly think about selecting someone who would be better suited to do that?
2: Yeah, not going to happen. It's just a politically impossible for mm-hmm. uh, Biden to even contemplate mm-hmm. uh, replacing Kamala Harris. Okay. Because i mean for for a number of reasons pr- principal among them uh think about the constituency uh think about the the voters who elected joe biden their uh th- you know the most important constituency by far were was african american voters uh you cannot suddenly consider removing uh, your your african american vice president and expect um expect that to be well-received. So it's just a political impossibility. Um, I, you know, I think I tr- I try to be fair in the book to, to Vice President uh, Harris. Uh, I certainly talked about the fact that... You called her a work
0: on, in progress. She had some s- bumps at first and has grown in yeah. the role.
2: Well, he certainly was frustrated with her early on because uh, her allies were complaining that he had given her... Mission impossible in effect, that he'd given her a, a, a much too difficult portfolio, including the so-called Northern Alliance, which is, of course, the 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 countries where uh where immigrants uh come from. And um it, it frustrated Biden that uh that he was hearing these complaints, including complaints from the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff. Uh, and when that got back to him, he was really pissed off. And he said to a friend, well, he, he was asked about her and he said, well, work in progress. Um, that that quote uh, got around when the book came out and probably didn't please the the vice president's office. But on the other hand, I do also tell the story about how she grew grew into the role, uh, particularly in national security issues. And she, on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine, she was the one who, who went to... Uh, Helsinki and and took uh, and took uh, the Ukrainian president Zelensky aside and and warned him that not only are the Russians coming for Ukraine, they're coming for you and your family. And Zelensky was skeptical. He didn't believe it. Um, and um, as it turned out, it was uh, it was all too true.
1: And there's also the story that you tell in the book about uh, her her friendship with the Macrons. In a time where they were kind of their nose was out of shape regarding Biden and she flew to France. Yeah. Yeah. Tell that story. Yeah,
2: exactly. She helped to smooth things over with uh, with uh, with Macron in France. Um, So I think that um, she's she's and she's growing into the role now. I mean, I think particularly now on 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 the subject of women's reproductive rights, uh, which is obviously right in her wheelhouse. She's out there leading that charge. And, and boy, that's going to be one of the most important issues in the 2024 election, as we all know.
1: You mm-hmm. know, a lot of people wonder whether or not we're going to remember about Dobbs, but. Usually, it's men who say that because women can't ever forget, especially women of childbearing uh, age. They do, they think about it every day of every month, so it's top of mind because it's what it's something I call a peace of mind vote. It's affecting the, their enjoyment of a new relationship, their enjoyment of their family. That it you think about it constantly when a right's been taken away. So yeah, I think there's going to be like for Trump, there's a lot of people that were never registered to vote who are now reg- they love Trump, so now they're voting. With with uh, Dobbs, there's women who have never been registered to vote who are going to vote. That's what do you think?
2: And if, the Biden, and if the Biden re-election campaign is smart, they will, between now and November of 2024, they will relentlessly play the tape of Donald Trump bragging yeah. that he killed Roe v. Mm-hmm. Wade. Mm hmm. Uh, and and you know the the ads write themselves as you can imagine. Kate Cox, the the Texas woman who had to leave the state, uh, that devastating story. Um, she had to flee Texas um, when she was told she couldn't have an abortion when her when the fetus was not going to survive more than a week. Um, and so I I think those those TV ads write themselves and they're going to be extraordinarily effective. Wow.
1: Are you continuing to write, uh, are you planning to write a book about the the next two years of the Biden administration? Are you continuing to write? I'll be
2: writing about the reelection for sure, okay. because my next book uh, is, is actually a little bit, um, a la the gatekeepers, which was my history of the white house chiefs of staff. I'm, I'm writing a history of the presidential campaign managers oh, from six, wow. from six, from 68 to the present. And, um, it's a it's a fascinating cast of characters, including a, a kind of rogues gallery of, uh, you know, from John Mitchell to Lee Atwater to uh, uh, James Carville and all the others. So and I'm going to be focusing, uh, but I'll be very much involved in writing about the 2024 election. In fact, I have an op ed uh, running in The New York Times next week on on what I think the Biden re-election campaign needs to do.
0: Do you think that the extreme right, the MAGA right, is going to come around on Ukraine, or is this going to turn into a, I mean, a, a, an abject failure because we can't get the votes in Congress?
2: That's a great question. Uh, it's a really difficult <clears throat> lift this uh, <clears throat> this legislation that they're that they're trying to do now, and and of, and of course it comes down to um, really to the House um, and. There are an awful lot of MAGA uh, nutcases uh, in the House, as as we all know. So <clears throat> I think the stakes could not be higher. I mean, I think that people talk about uh, how for, you know, we remember people used to say that uh, that winning, defeating Ukraine was existential for Vladimir Putin i think defeating vladimir putin is existential for western democracy there we go. i think that you cannot stop this guy if you don't stop him in ukraine uh he has no he wants to restore the russian empire uh it could not be more more serious than that um so the stakes are awfully high here Do you
0: you agree? I'm sorry. Do you do you agree that that it needs to be a clean sweep? For instance, take back everything. uh, 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 Zelensky has to take back Crimea, everything, all all of the natural borders. Or do you think we're getting to the point where, in the next six months or a year, there'll be a negotiated settlement that may not include those areas?
2: Color me just a, a skeptic about the notion that Vladimir Putin would negotiate, and even if he would negotiate. Who in the world would trust this guy mm-hmm. to to honor any agreement he made? Um this is not a guy with whom you can negotiate in, in good faith. So um and I when I talked to Bill Burns about this uh the CIA director um he he said essentially no look uh, Putin has no interest in negotiating and he's really he he really sees uh conquering Ukraine as existential
1: so when we see congress unwilling to fund the the war and we see so many in congress it's subservient to trump and we know that trump is subservient to putin how much of how many of our representatives work for putin i mean it's not discussed on mainstream media that direct that direct line is not drawn but what, what are your thoughts
2: Well, again, as I say, I I just think the stakes could not be higher. And it's a it's a depressing spectacle that we're we're witnessing. But I still I still have hope that um, that Congress will come around and 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 come up with funding for Ukraine. Uh, It's a heavy lift. But again, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against this White House team because they're they're pretty damn good at it.
0: You know, uh, there are a lot of things that are being uh, suppressed because of all the inflammatory news, Gaza and Ukraine and some issues that I was really proud of the president for his stands, like the environmental stuff, although John Kerry apparently just resigned. Do you think if he gets reelected, he will be able to take a breath and maybe concentrate on some of those larger issues to the horizon, like environmental things?
2: Yeah, and I and I think it's really important for him to... Uh, to to emphasize this during the campaign because he's he's got a problem with a lot of younger voters. Gaza is is a problem. Uh I think that he he needs to uh, to to create some separation with Netanyahu. I mean, he really needs to say that uh the near indiscriminate bombing of Gaza has got to stop. I think he needs to say that publicly and even if he can't change Netanyahu's Uh, policy he'll get credit for moral clarity there Um, and I'm circling around to your question because I think that while that alienates a lot of young voters um, I talked to my son about it it, and it reminds me of LBJ in Vietnam in 1968 I mean Mm -hmm. it's all younger people are talking about it's really important, but I think that the way you so you have to I think Biden needs to create moral clarity there, and then I think he needs to appeal to younger voters on the other things that are so important to them and um, and the environment, obviously global warming is 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 key there. Um, <clears throat> that's a really important issue. And so, yeah, I think uh, you know my old friend John Podesta, who was Clinton's White House chief of staff. He's he's working night and day trying to implement the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and all the all the, uh, the parts of it that mitigate global warming. So that's a really important issue for for younger voters, I think.
0: You know about Gaza. I, I felt bad for Joe Biden because I think he got his loyalty thrown back in his face. When that thing first happened, October 7th or whatever it was, he he did what Trump never did, which is stick up for our most important ally in the Middle East and went over there and was really stuck up for them and everything. And then uh, the the groundswell of support for the dying Palestinians uh, was just thrown back in his face. And it was just like the bottom fell out. I just that seems like a no win situation for him to be in. How does he circumvent all that politically?
2: Well, it's a difficult situation. And, and you never get any credit or rarely get much political credit for no matter how sure footed you are. And In international crises. I mean, just ask George H.W. Bush, uh, who had a 90% approval rating after the Gulf War and wound up being run out of office. So you often don't get any political credit for that. But I think Biden would get credit as absolutely nothing to lose, you know, having had Israel's back on October 7 and, and shortly thereafter, and having been so morally clear about the, the outrageous hamas assault uh he's in a very strong position now to to rein in the israeli offensive in gaza and he needs to do it
0: how do the israelis feel about netanyahu it's very mixed is it it's a well mixed yeah. it's
2: it's just you know it's a li- he's a little a lot like trump in many ways he's mm-hmm. got autocratic uh tendencies he uh to some extent <clears throat> waging this war may well be his strategy for staying in power. Uh, he's, um, you know, the Israeli society is just bitterly divided over Netanyahu, um, and it's it's uh, it's a mess. He had
1: propped up Hamas so that he could um, delegitimize the Palestinian Authority. So, and then mm-hmm. this happened on his watch, and he's more than indirectly responsible for it. Netanyahu needs there needs to be a vote of no confidence or whatever they Mm -hmm. they do. But, you know, it's coalitions there and everything. Chris knows more about this stuff than I do. But, yeah, Netanyahu is the problem over there right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you feel or if you were advising Biden, how do you feel about his most his more recent speeches where he was more stridently just sort of punching Trump in the face? Like, do we need more of that?
2: Yes, we need a lot more of that. Um, You know, the as the campaign Proceeds. uh, It's going to become much less of a referendum on Biden and and much more of a choice between Biden and Trump. But you can't make the mistake of assuming that people remember uh, that 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 voters remember just how destructive the Trump presidency was and just how or or understand how appalling a second term would be just based on what he's promised to do. So they're going to have to define, redefine Trump in no uncertain terms. Uh, you know, Jim Messina, who ran Barack Obama's campaign in 2012, launched a, a, a really early and very effective TV ad campaign that, that defined Romney as a heartless plutocrat. You know the Bain yeah. Capital guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it to, to tremendous effect. Uh, Biden was—I mean, Obama was way down. I mean, his approval rating was was low. He, <clears throat> the uh, Politico said he was toast. Remember about <laughs> about yeah. a year out, mm-hmm. and yet he came roaring back. Um, Messina told me that you know swing voters, a lot of them are working an average of. jobs uh, and paying about spending about four minutes paying attention to any of this Mm -hmm. up to now Mm -hmm. uh, a week. Um, week. Now you need to really (sighs) define Trump for those people. Mm
0: -hmm. Are are you fascinated by and flummoxed by, although I'm trusting polls less and less and we learned not to trust them completely in 2022. Thank goodness for that. But but the number of people that would support him, regardless of a conviction in any of these 5,000 cra- cases he's got against them, it's it's mind-blowing to me. Just on principle of having a convicted felon as a president, regardless of which team you're on, I just can't believe
1: it. Yeah, it was going to be a problem if it were going to be Hillary. <laughs> Remember? <clears throat> right. What if she gets indicted? Yeah,
0: it's, a, it's, I mean, a, it's really interesting time of social psychology, isn't it?
2: Yeah. <clears throat> Look, I can't. I, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a social psychologist, uh, but it strikes me as a cult worthy of Jonestown. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And John Podesta once said that about about the Republicans prior to Trump. Oh. Well, you know, that wasn't that was that was an overstatement then, but it's not now, I don't think. Uh, you know you you really have to wonder as uh, what it is about this guy. Um it's a it's a populist movement that we've we've really never seen before. I mean I as I'm working on my new book, I've gone back and I've read Fear and Loathing and on the Campaign Trail by Hunter Thompson back in nineteen seventy-two. <laughs> yeah. You're not old enough to remember that. No, book, oh, yes but, we are. But I I was reading the passages on George Wallace and thinking, wow, that's Trump. That's early Trump. Absolutely. But, but Trump is Trump is something else. I mean, he's a phenomenon that really goes way beyond yeah, that. There's
0: a dark political genius there. That's yeah. the whole yeah.
1: problem. No, he de- he definitely has a bead on something and we it doesn't register with us, so we're not exactly sure what it is. It's almost like it, it is almost like there's a there, he's making a sound that we cannot hear. Uh, but others can. What do you guys, you and your uh Brilliant friends, when you talk about the future of the Republican Party, what do you guys envision? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, God, I don't know. That's way above my pay grade. <laughs> um, I don't know what I would envision, but you know, it does seem to me this is not a, an original thought by any means. But it really does seem to me that the uh, it's a wholly owned subsidiary now of Donald Trump. It's um, it's been captured. It's um, and. The only way you can create, you really have to tear it down to to, to build something healthy in its place, mm-hmm. I think.
0: Does that leave uh, room for a third party, do you think? Or oh, that would be more destructive yeah, so than constructive? Scary.
2: Well, in the short term, I think the third party is really dangerous. And mm-hmm. I think no labels is just a disaster waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in Houston a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at the at the... at rice uh jim baker's institute and uh there are a couple of guys from new lab no labels there talking about how they were going to be on every ballot every state um and you just have to wonder you know what are these guys smoking what do they think they're going to accomplish um except uh the possible uh, uh election of donald trump uh, I, I think the no labels things is, uh, movement is really dangerous.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I agree. Well, uh, tell us just for a moment what it was like to try to write a book about a moving ball. There had to be a lot of paragraphs you were in love with that you just had to scrap and throw out the <laughs> bathwater. Well, how was that process for you?
2: Well, it was. It was. Uh, you know, my first two books on the. White House chiefs of staff, the gatekeepers, and the CIA directors, uh, the spymasters, covered cumulatively about a hundred years of history, uh, and that was challenging. But this was more daunting: trying to do a book on a White House in progress. This, the book I wrote on the on the first two years of the Biden White House, was was a little bit like, um, you know. It really was like building an uh an airplane in mid-flight. Whoa. You had mm, yeah. no idea where you were going to land the thing. Uh you're being buffeted by a COVID variant on one side, an invasion of Ukraine on the other. Uh you're you're just trying to steer the plane and hope you can land it somewhere. And on top of all that, not only uh you're covering up White House in real time, but this is maybe the most disciplined, locked down, uh, on message White House in recent memory. Uh, you Thank don't God. hear a lot of these people talking out of school, right? but I'm proud to say that in my book, In the Fight of His Life, that, uh, there are a lot of insiders, uh, speaking truth, um, and off script. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> that was a, tr- that was a hell of a challenge, as you can imagine. And, and so many of the interviews were on background, uh, not for attribution. And I had to go back and and negotiate uh, and 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 try to get them on the record, which I think I had pretty good success in doing. So it was a real challenge.
0: It's a fantastic book. I I, I want to ask you, your next book is about the 2024 election. No, it's about. all. well, well like...
2: it's about it's about the, the the it's a kind of history of presidential campaign managers. But oh, no, I didn't real, mean that. Yeah,
0: the one you're writing. But with real
2: yeah. focus on the 2024 election. Right. Yeah. I
0: just wanted to ask if you saw between now and then uh, the dark clouds on the horizon for real political violence, regardless of which way this goes, violence leading up to it, but if Trump loses, uh, a really bad reaction in the country.
2: Well, all of that is a real possibility. <clears throat> uh, January 6th is still... Um, you know, very much. Uh, you know, it's 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 certainly pretty close in the in our in our rearview mirror. Um, and I and 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 who thinks that if Donald Trump loses the 2024 election that he will uh, happily and willingly accept that verdict? Um, no, no person in his right mind would predict that. So I think that it's it's going to be obviously an ugly. Uh, campaign, and the stakes couldn't be higher.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, we just want to thank you so much for for joining us, folks. You can t- share how folks can find the book, and you have a great website that they can check out.
2: Yeah, it's chriswhipple.net, if, anybody, if anyone wants to uh, check it out. And there are links to uh, my books, including The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House.
1: And your next book, do you have a title for that yet?
2: Not yet. But I will keep you posted. Well, well and the, by the way, the paperback of The Fight of His Life is out now. Yeah. Uh, and it has a it has a new chapter uh on uh, on the Biden White House and his and his new White House chief of staff, Jeff Zients.
1: Is the new chapter going to go in the Kindle too? Yeah, should be. Okay, awesome. Well, it's just wonderful. We can't recommend it highly enough.
0: I got me the real honest to God book right here. There you go. And uh, yeah, Lawrence O'Donnell signed this one for me. Did no, he? I'm just kidding. No, no, he didn't. But well, I, Lawrence I just, O'Donnell's been very good to me. I oh, I know. I, I know. <laughs> I, 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 I thought this was just an important book, Chris. And it was like salve for my heart because you, again, you were very honest about some of the speed bumps, but you were also honest about the unsung aspects of the Biden White House. We didn't understand how historically positive this man's presidency has been. And I, I enjoyed reading that. It made me feel better about my country, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah.
2: Happy to oblige. Yes.
0: (laughs) Thanks for having me. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again.
1: All right, here come our closing credits. Don't Stay right there, Chris, because we're going to pose for a picture with you in front of the screen. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter. Or we are at Media Path Pod, And on Facebook, where our show page is Mediapath Podcast, and our Facebook group is Mediapath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with all kinds of wonderful bonus visual content on our YouTube channel. Or we are at Mediapath Podcast. You can write to us at Mediapath Podcast at Gmail. Email.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating wherever you find your podcasts and talk about us on social media, if you would be so kind. You can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at MediaPathPodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful esteemed guest, Chris Whipple. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, Chris Baldwin. Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Chris Whipple and Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. All right, hold your spot for 30 more seconds, Chris. We're going to get in front of the monitor and take a picture with you.